Welcome to the podcast on innovation and digital anthropology. This podcast is being brought to you by the Live Center and myself, Matt Arts. The Live Center is a nonprofit advancing how the world understands people in the digital age. The team at the Live Center, in partnership with UNESCO, is working to advance education, technology, and awareness for innovation in digital anthropology as a force for good across the public and private sectors. To help accomplish that goal, we have created this podcast in which we will explore the latest research and perspectives on innovation in digital anthropology. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of the Live in UNESCO podcast. I'm Matt Arts, and I'm here today with Hamanshu Pandey, who is the co-founder of Dignity Indifference, one, uh, the global design challenge winner, uh, one of the team from Dignity Indifference. And so we're going to talk about um, the company a little bit today, what they're doing, what they intend to do, how was the global design challenge that Live put on, and uh, what that experience was like through the days, and and what their what the big plans are. So, Manchu, thanks for joining. Would you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, I'm Himanshu, one of the co-founders of Dignity and Difference. We are, uh, on, we are an organization working in South Asia. We work against hate speech. So oh, we work in three different verticals. One is research, advocacy, and then training. Our uh, focus is to understand hate speech, not merely in its impact, uh, but also the communities that propagate them and the company communities that register. And we do that through digital anthropology. We try to understand, go deeper in wise so that the counter messaging or the efforts to register hate speech could be grounding in a deeper understanding of human behavior rather than merely the scale of it. So, and then we convert all of that information and insights into advocacy and training. So we train young people across South Asia, but we also advocate at different platforms in different capacities to nudge tech companies or uh, policymakers to for prevention of hate speech. Tell me a little bit more from, you know, speaking kind of from the digital perspective, what do you, how are you going about capturing the data or like, you know, where, 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 where are you looking for hate speech? Is it just broadly across the internet? Are you focused on social media? So we are focused on social media, but also uh, on new platforms. So, but that's the thing. Uh, and there are many ways to do it, but in the ways that we approach is we use, uh, we work with young people. We utilize their expertise because their lived reality they understand what it's what kind of technological interventions are changing their communities. So there would be new platforms that have come up. A lot of hate speech that we get actually come up from these private audio rooms in apps like Clubhouse. And uh, I wouldn't expect that, but but these uh, young people are able to curate and look forward to uh, look for the data in their own communities and crawl all of that together and then bring it back and build a database that is uh, and and that's that's what we use for analysis and insight finding so then if i understand correctly you actually have sort of a ground team if you will who is submitting the data to you you're not scraping it 
we use kind of assisted methods so ground teams um, our fellows tell us that where the data exists and it what forms then we use scraping algorithms to collect the data just out of curiosity so in clubhouse this is uh, admittingly more a question that i'm curious about maybe uh, you know given the temporary nature of the audio i I guess I wouldn't have expected that you could have got data from there. Uh, is is that data, pre- you know, is the audio preserved and is it actually accessible after the fact? So usually what, uh, what the fellows would do is they would record a live session. So whenever they experience hate speech or a particular group uh, using certain amount of discrimination and that recording is what we would use. Hate speech, you know, in different cultures takes obviously different forms. There are different targets. There are different ways of framing that language. There are probably different subtle meanings behind certain phrases that are not always immediately obvious um, unless you're you know, a native language speaker. So how are you doing this you know, across Southeast Asia? I mean, I appreciate you have the fellows who, who are pointing you in the right direction, but then once you get that data, how are you analyzing that and dealing with those cultural differences? Oh, uh-huh. And that's something that we have been struggling with. Thank you. <laughs> because a lot of the hate speech detection models and data sets that exist uh, are actually, what do you call have come from the countries that use English uh, in a very different way than it's used in South Asia. So it requires us to put a lot of effort in categorizing, finding keywords, and it gets even more difficult in internet uh, because uh, sarcasm could sometimes go hand in hand with discrimination. And that's where we get a lot of false positives for when we try to do a mixed method analysis on the data set. So our long-term goal is actually to build these classifiers and in a language and the intricacies of uh, semantics that's grounded in South Asia. So can you tell us maybe, again, given sort of the the focus of Live, it might be interesting from a digital methods perspective to hear a little bit about um, the analysis piece. So we heard a little bit about collection already. You have, you know, you have the fellows who help point you in the direction, then you do some scraping using probably, you know, traditional methods out there for scraping at this point in time. But now that you have the data, we know it is challenging, but what how have you been trying to approach the analysis so far? There are two questions. One is uh, a bit more uh, technological, and that's how we differentiate between what is discriminatory and what is not. The other question that is more ethical is who has the power to decide? And that's where we are trying to work with the communities. Uh, ethical uh, ethical or religious minorities in the countries where they are targeted. So to give more power in their hand, it's more revolving around the ideas of design justice. So we are trying to build this channel of algorithmic analysis by putting more emphasis in in the hands of the ones that have, uh, that has seen the most discrimination. So we are trying to build the pipeline that we are trying to create is when the data comes to us, uh, the communities uh, volunteer some time and they are they are very proactive, volunteer some time into labeling the data sets. 
providing us uh, the thick part of it, help us understand why the scale of this problem looks this big. And then we using, we combine the, the big trends of big data and, and the thick part of their contributions together to make a whole picture of uh, that could be utilized then by a lot of other stakeholders to build a defense against hate speech. So they're helping you label up front. Are they also doing any kind of like reinforced learning on the back end where they're also reviewing the results and confirming how they look? Uh, that's what we have been trying to do. But um, but in a longer run, especially once we have decent enough funds, we do plan to empower communities and find certain ways to also because this has entirely been volunteer initiative, we really want to find ways to empower the community itself to look and decide who gets the power to access the data set, who gets power to, again, what could be a couple of quality checks that we can deploy at the other end. But reinforcement learning is what we are trying to do through labeling. You know, the question of power there is obviously relevant and important. And just tell us from the human perspective, what kind of response are you getting to involving, you know, the community in this this endeavor? The good thing is we are starting starting it as a pilot. Um, and trying to work with the smaller data sets from niche areas. Because once we jump into once we take the social media as a whole, it just becomes too much. We, we want to work with targeted communities in targeted online spheres where, uh, where it's much more easier to what do you call it? both gather the data and then also keep the, keep the loop of uh, stakeholders together. Uh, we, for example, one of the pilot projects that we are recently starting is with new new media avenues. There are a lot of local news applications that have come up in South Asia where people get local news from local news reporters. Depending upon where you are, you might get a lot of hate speech on these platforms and a lot of partisan news. We are trying to, but it's a very niche area, so we are trying to work with these Spanish areas in order to make this, um, make these pilots more, um, more actionable, as in. And then whatever learnings we get from running this in a very dedicated space, then we try, then we try to scale it up to uh, other platforms. Uh, probably have more wider scope. But for now, we are just focusing on very niche areas. I could see how, you know, once you nail the one community down, the sort of niche area, it becomes a little easier to scale to other platforms that that same community um, operates in or engages, you know, with. The question of scale to other languages still seems like it would be a pretty considerable challenge. So would you say that from your experience so far, do you find that 
the work you've done in one language helps you move to the next and you've gained some ground? Or do you feel like each new language you're almost starting over? I'm looking at it from the perspective of building these communities. That if I'm able to create and empower one community, where they are able to take lead in building these systems and labeling these data sets, uh, with this whole ecosystem of stakeholders who also benefit from this data and do something actionable so that the community feels that they are contributing to a meaningful defense against hate speech. If I'm able to build that community in one language, I think there are opportunities for us to create uh, similar communities in other other languages. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the product so far and, and the company and what you're trying to do. Um, but tell us maybe a little bit more, you know, I, you're listed as a co-founder. So tell us a little bit more about the team. Oh, uh, so we, we come from very different uh, backgrounds. I have a background in computational science. I was an engineer, a uh, hardcore engineer uh, before that. But I also worked in policy space. So worked with a couple of UNESCO initiatives in prevention of violent extremism. Uh, my other co-founders, one of them is a journalist. So she has um, she has worked with a lot of news news agencies in South Asia. Uh, the other two, one of them has been uh, working in youth space, so building youth communities and working with youth leaders. Now, the other person is a gender expert. So it's kind of a very diverse set of people trying to, one of the things that brings us, us together is digital anthropology, which is, um, which is exactly what um, was being a challenge. That, um, because we come from very different kind of silos of work, we see things a bit differently. Thankfully, in our case, we are able to work together with our differences uh, in perspective and to be able to examine a couple of the places where we contradict each other through the lenses of digital anthropology. And I think that's where the power of the tool also lies. Just out of curiosity, how did you come to discover anthropology and you know what spoke to you about it? I had, I, I was aware of the tools, so, you know, um, but... I guess we discovered it out of need. We wanted to, uh, when we started working with communities, we realized that it's in no way possible for them to put all of this data together and analyze it individually. It requires a certain amount of amalgamation between how we, uh, how we were trying to imagine social sciences and engineering working together. So we have to use, it was out of necessity that we had to use machine learning and web scraping and a bit of automation in the process. Let's talk a little bit about the design challenge. So how did you discover it? You know, or, or even, you know, tell us, how did you come to just be aware of the whole Live UNESCO partnership? And then how did you discover the design challenge? I think, oh... Somebody in my LinkedIn feed posted about the challenge and I was super curious because it was um, the ideas that they were trying to bring not just anthropologists or not just data scientists, but everyone, even on the periphery together to explore how is it that 
uh, that we can try to work with gender discrimination uh, online and invent new methods in digital anthropology. It's, it sounded sound sounded very interesting to me, and um, it, it was also pretty much aligned with the kind of work that we were doing. So we jumped in. And so, tell us a little bit about your experience. You know, over those over that uh, weekend. Um, you know, what was it like? Was it your first design challenge? You know, was it was this a new experience to you? Do you normally work at that pace? You know, tell us just a little bit about how that went. I think from uh, back in the time where I was an undergraduate student, so uh, there would be certain hackathons and uh, on the same pace, but. Uh, it's been long time since I have participated in the 72-hour design challenge. But what I really loved about uh, the challenge was that it not only brought together this diverse set of people, so everybody who was coming there was genuinely very motivated for the problem statements that we were working with, but the mentors and the sessions were really enriching. All of the mentors, uh, we kind of tried to meet as many as we could. All of them volunteered their time. Tried to listen to the problems, problems that we were working with and really gave us wonderful insights from their own expertise. But the mentor sessions that were common for all were also very interesting. I really loved attending the talks. It was during Diwali, so which is a major festival in South Asia. And I remember being with family and being on, constantly being on those calls. But uh, it was a huge learning opportunity for all of us in the team. And uh, yeah, with just 72 hours of uh, just, you know, we started and it quickly finished. It didn't feel like an entire long weekend. So I appreciate that you, you know, were really uh, grateful for all of the the mentors that were there but was there you know anybody that stood out that their work or their feedback really resonated with you i think uh it would be unfair for me to take just one name but i but all of them for example one mentor talked about how how the problem that we are trying to work with is essentially rooted in the history of anthropology. So, you know, the the background of where it came from, the background of how how little data sets and algorithmic development exist in South Asia. I'm not sure how many how many speakers have been on your podcast, Matt, who are from South Asia. Uh well, you are the first in the Live podcast and even on my personal podcast, I have not had anybody yet. Exactly, because there uh, there are none to find. There are very few people who work in this domain. So they also made us aware about the challenges that exist when working on the uh, digital anthropology in South Asia. So, you know, how little support we might get in terms of finding language models, trying to work with uh, work with dictionaries. So, and then another word talked about the ethics of it, the terms that we were using what 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 those meant and a couple of the ideas i think we were talking about a lot of things but we kind of didn't have a name for some of them and the mentors were uh, kind of generous to afford us a vocabulary of uh, 
of what we were talking about. This was overall a very wonderful experience to learn a lot of things. And so what did you tell us a little bit of just about, you know, in a sense, coming into the design challenge, where were you in your sort of journey or roadmap as an organization? And what hurdles do you think you got over and where did you end? So we had we had a great training program, initial training program in which we were we have been working with fellows and teaching them a couple of really key essential concepts of hate speech and violence. And we had a decent enough advocacy uh, presence in all the relevant organizations that are there to influence decision making. But it was very difficult for us to pinpoint a theoretical standpoint when it came to research. That we were using mixed methods, so we were picking up on uh, qualitative methods, we were doing a lot of um, desk research and finding gaps, um, and nudging, nudging our research objectives. But coming at the program made us aware of this, um, of grounding us in methods. It told us that what we were trying to do had could be reimagined in a couple of different ways. And one of them being a combination of thick and big data, for example. Uh, we were using uh, assisted uh, machine learning assisted and qualitative analysis. But how do we combine that with the big trends of hate speech that emerge for a large enough population of South Asia? So it just gave us many key pointers in crowding our research methods. And that has kind of influenced our law heavily over research strategies and stuff. And so you talk about methods there. How about, you know, the theoretical perspectives? What, um, is there any major you know, theories from the social sciences at large that really ground and shape your thinking about the problem? I think design justice is one of them. That um, we have tried to, and it took us a lot of courage to do that, is to really make sure that what we, in every, in every research objective, in every research pipeline that we are designing, the people who are impacted the most has uh, has a say. They are part of the process. Nothing for them without them has been a key idea in how we are building both the methods and analysis and uh, the entire ecosystem around it, leading to advocacy. Uh, so design justice is a central pillar, pillar for us. But apart from that, citizen science, so using the idea that um, that a lot of citizens, especially the ones who work uh, when it comes to distal consumption, there are a lot of distal, a lot of distal communities are willing to live in spaces that are less hateful, more just and more kind. And we can leverage their power there um, to, to, to shape the science of it to understand these communities and to understand where to nudge. So I think citizen science, design justice are two very important pillars on how we are designing it. 
So you've now gone through a design challenge. You won the $10,000 grant. Tell us what's next. So now we are trying to build the, build the system that we had proposed. Uh, and uh, the next six months are going to be about running the pilot. Because there are a lot of things that we still don't have answers for. You, when you work with digital communities, you can't have gatekeeping of who comes uh, inside your moderation circle and who doesn't. So there are a lot of things that are unknown. And we really want to run a couple of a couple of pilots and see what works best in shaping these communities. Um, and working with uh, working with these methods, it's not something that has been done in past. Uh, with the scale of community involvement that we are top, uh, we are targeting. So, really curious, but also kind of tiny bit scared about what it might entail. Well, sure, you all do great. Sounds like a yeah, well framed idea. Um, also much needed, of course, uh, not just there but globally. And uh, we hope you succeed for the benefit that that could really uh, provide for everybody. So, Hamanju. Thanks very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, would you mind just, last thing, would you let everybody know where they can find the company if they want to learn more about it? So we are Dignity and Difference across uh, all the platforms. Uh, but if you can just drop me an email at himanshu at dignityanddifference.org. So again, Himanshu, thanks very much. We appreciate it and congratulations. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Live Center at livecenter.org and follow, subscribe, and share to help us spread the news on innovation in digital anthropology. I'm your host, Matt Arts. Until next time.